A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I want to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. So I was listening to popular sports podcast Second Captains on my flight home for my holidays last Friday and I heard old Helen Lovejoy here, Ken Early, giving out about young Nathan Collins and the damage he might do to himself if he doesn't clean up his knee slide technique after mm. his increasingly frequent goal-scoring interventions. Then I tuned into Manchester United Arsenal on Saturday morning and there was Nuno Tavares almost decapitating himself after three minutes attempting a knee-slide goal celebration that was actually the world's most farcical attempt at ploughing a field with your own knee. As I was watching, I was convinced that he had actually smashed his own patella in the act of celebrating his own goal. So I thought to myself, maybe Ken's pearl clutching is in order here. Will someone please think of the goal scorers. So thank you, Ken, and welcome to today's Second Captain's Football podcast. Hello, uh, Kieran, how are you? Welcome back. Oh, I'm, I'm delighted to be back uh, on a weekend where Arsenal took control of the race for fourth. Liverpool were made to huff and puff a bit for their three points yesterday. Everton are starting to look a little haunted. And the resurgence of the aforementioned Burnley continues apace. So plenty of you to get stuck into, Ken. I can feel you just straining at my presenter's leash on loan to me from McDevitt for the day. But settle, please, just for a moment, while I remind our Monday listeners that to sign up for four more shows this week, including Champions League semi-final coverage across all the shows, as well as access to all of our extensive back catalogue, including Players' Chair episodes with Richie Sadler and Politics Podcast with the aforementioned Ken Early, then it's just €5 a month plus VAT wherever you are in the world. Just go to secondcaptains.com forward slash join and we'd be delighted to have you along. Uh, We're going to hear from Miguel Delaney and Rory Smith of the New York Times a little later on. But uh, Ken, if you could report on some sport, please, that would be swell. Where to begin is kind of an interesting uh, question this weekend. But I I think perhaps maybe the Merseyside Derby uh, Ken, maybe the thing that's burning a hole in your consciousness and the, as I've already mentioned, Everton's problems look ever more intractable. What did you make of just how they set up for their derby game against Liverpool yesterday? Well, it was a game which everybody, um, when they were watching the game, seemed to quickly form the same impression, which is that this is like that game when Frank Lampard was in the Chelsea team that played at Anfield in April 2014 and defended and counterattacked and Steven Gerrard fell over and Chelsea won 2-0 and blew up Liverpool's title challenge and Jose Mourinho ran in his sportswear towards the Chelsea supporters and leapt in the air and, and punched the air. And Frank Lampard, uh, who was the, the number 10, the 35-year-old number 10, as he mentioned after the game, um, he walked off that field a happy man. Well, I mean, you know, happy, happy at a job well done. Not happy about the fact that Chelsea weren't going to win the title that season. Uh, they'd already blown it. I think Chelsea that season... That, that's the thing about that, that Chelsea game is that Mourinho actually kind of picked the team as a sort of a protest... Um, 
they, they were between Champions League semifinals, if I recall correctly. And I don't think he really expected to get anything out of it, but he didn't really need to either. What he was focused on doing was winning the Champions League, which they, they ultimately didn't because they got beaten by Atletico Madrid. Um, but he kind of picked this as a sort of a, you know, I, you know, what, what can I do with the authorities in England uh, prejudice against Chelsea? You know, similar to the way that Jurgen Klopp is complaining about having to play Newcastle um, next Saturday in the in the early kickoff, uh, and he sort of wasn't re- wasn't actually expecting to get anything out of the game, but then it happened. You know, it just it just all came together, and ra- and 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 what was a kind of a throwaway game from Rio has gone down as like one of his defining masterclasses. The the great moments of Jose's career are always him. Um, celebrating in an enemy stadium, but next to the fallen carcass of uh, what everyone thought was the favourites, uh, Manchester United when, when it was you know Porto 2004, Mourinho running down the the, the touchline at Old Trafford after Porto's late goal that game. Yeah, Inter, Barcelona. Yeah, yeah Inter. Yeah. Turning the spring, <laughs> turning the sprinklers on to try and get Mourinho <laughs> off the pitch at Inter as he, as he, and then Anfield 2014 with Chelsea. These are you know his his classic moments, but you know. So it's kind of gone into history as as a uh, as a big milestone in in football tactical history, I think, which is unfortunate because it was a kind of a freakish outcome, and certainly not not a game that I think anyone should uh, take any learnings from. And it certainly would have been an unwise way for Frank Lampard, I I believe, to approach this game yesterday. And Frank Lampard actually specifically denied that that game was his blueprint for the one yesterday mm. you know and he, he because he was asked about this afterwards i mean everyone was sort of commenting on it carger kept talking about it during the um the game you know gary neville who wasn't on the game was was tweeting about it oh this is like chelsea 2014 you know although they're not as good as jose chelsea and liverpool are better than they were then um and then Jeff Shreves asked, asked lampard about it after the game and, and lampard was quite i thought it was quite funny watching him as he remembered the game, he started to smile. He he briefly looked happy, like his haggard <laughs> face. His haggard face just became became momentarily warm and happy. As he it's as like he, that, like that terrible uh, tea bags ad. It's either Barry's or Lance. I can't remember. I wasn't beautiful, but I was beautiful that day. Says grandmother <laughs> to granddaughter. <laughs> you know? God, that sounds really terrible. I totally have seen that. Come on, that's part of the, the national consciousness at this age, Ken. Bill. Oh, I can't. I'll, I can't I'll send it on to you later. But uh, Jesus, that sounds really grim. Uh, <laughs> Frank Lampard would never say something like that. I mean, he was beautiful. The, he the was number beautiful. ten, thirty-five. You know, you know, did a really solid, did a really professional job. We, you know, we did a great thing. Yeah. But no, that wasn't what. Uh, and then he remembered that he's actually the Everton manager, and they're going to get relegated. And and he stopped smiling, and he began. He realized that he's in it. He's living in a much colder, crueler, bleaker reality now mm. than that day um, back uh, eight years ago. Um, but what Lampard then said was. We, uh, he said, we're not in a position to go toe to toe with a team like this. When you look at what they're doing to teams, you know, what we're in a position to do is be smart, be smart, be very disciplined. We asked the players to be disciplined, be smart. And then, you know, and so we did that really well for an hour. And then unfortunately the goal goes in and it becomes very difficult after that. So that's the way he sees it. And I just thought, well, there you go. I mean, he says that it's not, it's not based on 2014. But it clearly, it is like, and not not necessarily in the sense that, you know, I've been in a situation a lot like this before. What we do is, you know, we 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 kind of copy. What what did Jose say that day? We sort of copy the game plan, and we go out there, we frustrate, we waste time, and you know that'll get them to, they'll start clucking, and you know the the dividing memory of that game was uh, was the the way Liverpool were hurrying, 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 you know, um, Gerard running to to grab the ball out of out of Mourinho's. Hands, mm. uh, Mourinho on the, Mourinho on the sideline. That was after, after just a couple of minutes, I think. You know, Suarez screaming at Mark Schwarzer, the, who was the Chelsea goalkeeper that day, to to um, to you know hurry up, take the goal kick. Well, this is a this is a joke. You know, you're like he's not mm. he's not going to do it just because you're shouting at him to do it. You know, stop wasting energy shouting at Chelsea's goalkeeper not to time waste. I mean, moan to the ref, maybe, but like this is this is a joke. And that was that was at nil nil. This is from a team that only needed a draw. <laughs> so that was what you could say is that was a team that was super hyped up and not nothing like this the current Liverpool team. 
who have been winning things, winning matches, winning trophies for several seasons now. You know, that mm. team, that, that Rogers team had played about 20 good matches. You know, they, it was a, it was like a team that had sort of unexpectedly come together. Suarez was having, you know, the season of his life. Gerard was kind of squeezing out one last great season. You know, Coutinho turned out to be a good player. Sterling and Sturridge were playing well. You know, there was there was a lot of good players who were who were kind of fitting. You know, Henderson had, had sort of started to, to click for them. Um, the defense was was a complete clown show. But the, the team had had won it. But they didn't really have any deep grounding. They didn't have any kind of uh, uh, you know resilient sort of. Uh, they hadn't been tested, really battle tested. Or a back catalogue that they could, you know, look back on and say, in these situations, we have dug it out in the past. Therefore, we are supremely confident that if we stay patient here, things will happen for us. We will be okay. We know exactly what we have to do. We've we've faced this problem, like we faced this exact problem, you know, a hundred times and we've won 90 of those matches. And the way that you win a match like this is by doing you know, well, mm. well, what you eventually saw Liverpool do, I think, in the game, I mean, that great piece of play by Salah, you know, it's just get, just put in these dangerous crosses. Or, or the, the the second goal was maybe a better illustration of, of their typical method. You know, where Henderson just playing that cross. How many times do you see Henderson, Henderson play that sort of diagonal ball into that mm. exact space? And then it was it's a kind of an inspirational a moment of brilliance by Diaz to sort of turn it into a such a, you know, a simple chance for Origi. But like... You've seen this mechanism so many times. It, it's a, it's literally a mechanism. It's like get the ball to there, then stick it across the way, and try and get it back across the goal, and that's going to be a chance. <laughs> whereas the whereas the the Liverpool team that went one one down to Chelsea, it was especially the way they did it. It was Steven Gerrard thinking, "I've got to save this team. I've done this, and it's my responsibility to score the equalizing goal that will save the day here." And he ends up having nine shots, <laughs> nine shots from central from the back of central midfield. <laughs> I mean, that is just you know. So what I'm saying is that. Lampard said he did not base it on that game, but being part of a game like that has completely conditioned the way that Lampard thinks about football. And so he thinks, I mean, he revealed that he thinks it's smart to go to Anfield and play against the Jurgen Klopp Liverpool uh, with a game plan that's like, we're going to sit in, defend our box, and basically hope to nick one. And he thinks that's smart. Hmm. This is not smart. This is... This is basically declaring defeat. This is a this is a way of saying we're not going to get anything out of this match, and we're going to just make sure that we don't run around a lot. <laughs> and, I mean, in that sense, maybe there is a rationality to it. You know, in the sense that well, I'm going to find a way to lose the game that involves us expending the least amount of energy as a team by by simply you know sort of standing in front of our box, kicking the ball away. So you so you had Everton having. Uh, you know, a really low. But if, you, uh, if but if you had talked to Liverpool fans after seventy minutes of that game, even after the first goal, you know they were still by no means in a relaxed frame of mind. No, because they I mean, all were, were they still were, in the they game. They mostly remember twenty fourteen as well. I mean, if you you know when you saw the the uh, did you see the Allison uh, moment at the end when Allison? Yes. I mean, it was, which, which was which was good. I mean, it was. Uh, a bit of goalkeeper banter. It's coming more into the game. I mean, Aaron Ramsdale was at it again, you know? Maybe a, a slightly malicious edge to Aaron, Aaron Ramsdale's banter as poor Bruno Fernandes missed that penalty and Aaron Ramsdale got right up in his business. Uh, Aaron Ramsdale, look, we'll, we'll get to Ramsdale. <laughs> but uh, it was a bit of banter from, uh, first of all, Pickford and then returned uh, sarcastically mm. by Alisson, which was, which was pretty funny. But the thing that sticks in my mind about it is when they showed the joyous crowd shot of everybody laughing. I was like, mm. look how old the crowd is. <laughs> there's a lot of old bangers in the crowd these days in Premier League games you know what I mean what I'm saying is that those almost, old baggers I mean I'd be I'd be there myself you know what I mean I'd, I'd, you'd be I'd, the old I'd bagger in, category, I'd be in the same you? category myself you know am I okay. am I above the median age now yeah I guess I guess I guess I am I guess I've made it mm. into the top top half of the age distribution so everything after this is a bonus yeah just on my way up that population pyramid you know just <laughs> eyeing the, the steadily narrowing pyramid yeah, of it. Can't, can't wait to graduate out of that one. anyway yep. um, but look uh, so, so all of this history is there you know um, soaked into the crowd into the memories but really this is a way to this is just a recipe for defeat and I feel like the, the responsibility is on a coach like Lampard who remember is a young coach the only coaches the younger than him in the Premier League are Arteta and Steven Gerrard. Uh, you know, he's younger than all the others. 
And yet this is just a seriously antiquated way of trying to get a result. And really, I think you need to come up with something better than that. You know, you, you need to have some better ideas. I mean, Brighton had a better idea than that. Now you could say, well, you know, Brighton played Liverpool at a better moment of the season. You know, they were, they, they kind of got them on a, on, a, on a good day and so on and so forth. And there is an element of truth to that, I guess. You know, their form at that point wasn't as good. But, you know, they... they, mm. they does, does goal difference not come into this as well, though? You know what I mean? That, like, if you, you know, you can go out and... What you're talking about, basically, is everyone should have gone and played and pressed Liverpool high up the field and tried to win the ball back they high need up to the field. Do, they need to do something else. That, you know, something... What, what, they, what I'm saying is that what they did was as close as you can get to just declaring defeat before the game as it's possible to get, right? And they needed to try something else because it's not unheard of. The thing about Liverpool is it's not a case... Of, it's very difficult to defend, to keep a clean sheet against them for 90 minutes. You have to score. And it, realistically, if you want to lose, if you, if you want to, sorry, if you want to not lose, you have to score twice. And if you can do that, and 12 teams have done it this season, scored at least two, yeah. a couple of them have scored three. If you can do that, then you probably won't lose. That's, the, that's what you've got to do. That's what you've got to aim to do. Uh, I mean, everyone did it last season. You know, again, they, that was an, an example. At Anfield, I mean, that was an example, I suppose, of them catching Liverpool at a... At a, at a in a weaker moment. But if I look at this season, the the obvious example is really is Brighton. And I feel as though you know, that, that was a two two draw as well at Anfield. And I feel as though this is kind of the you know, um Tottenham also had a two two draw. Tottenham had better players than Everton for sure. Um what what I'm saying is I'm not sure that, that Frank Lampard necessarily has that in his uh, in, in his locker. I'm not sure he has a mm. game plan like that. They're in a really, really bad spot now. When you look at, they're two points behind. They've played a game uh, less than Burnley, but how much of an advantage is that uh, when you just keep losing um, uh, games, as Everton have been doing over the last 15 games or so? Uh, their goal difference is five goals worse off than Burnley. You look at Burnley's next two games are against Watford and Villa. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's not good. That no. is that is not a good scenario for Everton to be in. No, it's uh, it's now it's now looking like oh oh no this is really this is it, and um, Everton have Chelsea and Leicester coming up in their next few games. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, you know, and if 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 Burnley were to take another four points from their next from those two imminently winnable games uh, against teams two places above them and two places below them then you're looking at them being on 37 points. Ooh. Yeah, it's not good. It's, yeah. not, it's not good. But what... Um, it wasn't the what about thing. Ramsdale then? Do, do, do we uh, want to move on to Ramsdale, do we? Well, we Ramsdale had, and company, as I like to call Arsenal, of course, these days. What we had yesterday was two... Or not yesterday, over the weekend, rather, was two uh, skipping penalty takers, miserably missing penalties. <laughs> Hmm. Which I thought was sort of interesting, because I remember when, when Bruno Fernandes and, and Jorginho were doing this, you know, in their pump of a of a season or two ago, um, it looked as though it was like, oh, this is they, these guys have kind of solved penalty taking, like the, mm. the, the you know, the, they've cracked the code. I mean, it's it's literally impossible. How like how, how can, can you, you stop yeah. this? How can how can this be stopped? And so to see these, how can this be stopped is not a thing that you said when you looked at <laughs> watch Fabianski like nearly fall over himself, like fall past the ball. The ball rolled so slowly into his hands. Yeah, I mean, it was just like. Yeah. Well, I saw. I mean, it just looks so bad. It looks so so bad when it goes wrong. I saw. I thought this is this is a Pat Nevin level penalty, and Pat Nevin himself, I saw, had uh, had tweeted about the, about his own very famous penalty where he he took on one memorable occasion the one of the, the most feeble penalty anyone had seen <laughs> up to that point on television. <laughs> but but uh, and so I described it as the second worst I've seen at Stamford Bridge. He said, uh, mm. uh, still unwilling to renounce the, the title of the worst ever penalty. But um, I saw Gare Jorda, this guy who who um, sort of posts about football tactics and so on on Twitter, um, coming in with a theory that uh, actually the goalkeepers have started to respond to the skip they've they've started start, start, started trying to figure out what's going on and basically because the technique is is goalkeeper dependent it's like what you're doing is waiting to see what the goalkeeper does and then you know putting it the other way mm. 
that uh, a little bit of fakery by the goalkeeper, and he does it with reference to the Fabianski. Um, this was the the you know West Ham against Chelsea. That that essentially Fabianski had fooled Jorginho into thinking he's going one way uh, when he's always actually going to go the other way, and uh, and he says it. However, I'm not sure about this. Um, <laughs> I kind of feel as though Jorginho just hit the penalty so badly that it was quite difficult. I don't want to say not difficult for him not to say, but I just feel as though if Jorginho kind of crisp, crisply knocks that one into the corner, he's going to score anyway. And the same thing with Bruno Fernandes, who, uh, if you look at Ramsdale, Ramsdale didn't do any of this Fabianski stuff. He just completely went the wrong way. <laughs> he he totally went the wrong way. He never, he, he, there was never a moment when he looked like, and Bruno went and, you know, aimed for the, for the uh, empty side of the goal and and then he hit the outside of the post so again it was a, a terribly um, aimed penalty and uh, just bad just a badly struck penalty i thought what does ramsdale do literally like just look at it again it's it's unbelievable straight up uh jumps off the ground runs towards bruno and then uh, celebrates you know just in front of him but like in a huge way like ramsdale just looks so big when he does this you know what i mean it's like how his his arms and legs are sort of so wide apart you know what i mean it's like this it's like there's like a 10 foot wingspan he somehow manages to create the impression of it's uh, like what did what uh, uh david bird of talking heads would look like if he was a goalkeeper it was just, you know, the mad the, the massive suited david bird it was like what are you you know the, the, and you didn't do anything you actually <laughs> <laughs> that, that wasn't that wasn't you you didn't build that you almost ended up in the stand you avoided the ball so studiously there but uh you know uh, it was a huge moment obviously because this uh, this would have been 2-2 for um, could have been 2-2 for Manchester United which would have been um, a big momentum shift in that game with the way that it had gone um, a messy game uh, ultimately Granit Xhaka comes out on top you know I mean we were talking about Xhaka myself no I'm talking about Xhaka last week he's having a good uh, he's having run a run of good games at the moment Arsenal maybe he's lucky to get away with the goal being allowed. I mean, the justification from the, you know, the, because it was an offside or Nketiah is in an offside position in front of De Gea. But they said, yeah, well, Lindelof is there as well. So he's in the same line. So, um, yeah, you can't see through Lindelof either. So hmm. that was their justification. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's looking pretty It was bad a hell for, of a strike, you'd have to say, Ken. It was. And, and of course, who was there? Who, who was there in the build-up? But, Bruno Fernandes, you know, mm. and it is a, there, there is a, a kind of a sudden um, change in the mood around Bruno, isn't there? It's amazing. It's like all since he signed that new contract. Mm. <laughs> well, it's not all since he signed the new contract, but they did give him a mega deal, um, you know, apparently uh, doubling his his salary like three weeks ago until twenty twenty six, and since when they have announced. Uh, obviously, Eric Ten Hag, and everyone. Uh, the, the, have you seen the Eric Ten Hag video? The Eric Ten Hag video. What video is this now? There's so much excitement over shouty Eric Ten Hag in the video. Um, I have seen. Um, there's a Eric Ten Hag footage shows he's about to give Manchester United something they desperately need. Uh, is the headline on Samuel Lookhurst's piece in the uh, Manchester Evening News? Um, Bruno Fernandes is more effective at moaning at teammates than taking penalties from Man United this season. And the refusal of anyone to give any back is another issue. Uh, the the uh, blurb continues of the article. And so what this is, is a video uh, from, I believe, December 2019, when Eric Ten Hag is managing Ajax. I mean, he's still the Ajax manager mm -hmm. um, uh, for now. And he is shouting at a 20-year-old Ajax player, Noah Lang, who has only recently broken into the team? Uh, he's, sh he's shouting, shouting uh, at sideline. Uh, basically, you have to, you have to run deep. You have to drop. You, you have to track back, basically. Mm. And then your man, that it seemed like the the player who we can't see because we're just looking at Ten Hag in this in this video. The player is like me, me, you know, says says something like me, me, me. and and uh, Ten Hag just goes, no, you know, you've got to shut up, uh, shut your mouth. You just have, you just have to do it. You just need to do it. Cut it out. It's our game, not just yours. So that's the, you know, and so he's really laid down the law with this guy. With, uh, with this Dutch teenager, which I fear... 20-year-old, to be fair. 20 years old. Two I decades. I apologize. I misspoke. Yeah. I misspoke. I apologize. Let me rephrase. 
So that's fine with this Dutch young youngster. Yeah. And I believe a 20-year-old is still a youngster. Yeah. It, the, the, basically, the whole idea of this is that will he be doing that? Will he have the stones, Ken, quite frankly, to do this to the seasoned pros at Old Trafford? Well, I mean, he that might, is the big question. He might. Uh, I'm, I'm sure he 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 will. Um, but I do wonder if I mean, will they react as positively as Noah Lang? Although did Noah Lang react positively? I mean, apparently he was shipped out on loan pretty soon after that, and uh, and Ten Hag brought in Ryan Babel. So maybe that's good. Maybe that's what Manchester United need. It all promises to get a bit more shouty at Manchester United. And then I went in to get the ass that fell over the bit of tube, and anyway, I went in to get a little bit of tube. And I, I looks around, and there's Jerry Duff, Duffer's dad. I went in to get a little bit of tube. So it was a very interesting day. Everyone should, everyone should go to the motor factories on a Friday afternoon when it's sunny. <laughs> Rory Smith, Miguel Delaney, uh, good morning to you both. Uh, Rory, can I start with you? My God, it's really happening. Everton are going down. Yeah, do you know, I, I didn't think until until I looked at the table on Sunday that there was any chance at all of Everton being relegated because you kind of think, well, Burnley surely can't get enough points. Watford and Norwich are gone already. Burnley looked like they were kind of stumbling towards relegation. It's, it, at some point, Burnley will get relegated just as the size of the club. And then, then you realise that Everton are two points adrift now with, I think, five games left to go. Maybe they might have six to play. And... Next weekend, Burnley are at Watford, who can't win at home. And they played before Everton play at home to Chelsea. At which point, Everton could well be five points from safety with if they lose to Chelsea with five games left. that That's really bad. I, I, I think there is now a very real possibility that Everton get relegated. It, it seems still seems somehow unlikely that it will happen, but th- they are in, in deep water. If that's... I'm not, I mean, yeah... They're in the shit, basically, and yeah. it's 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 hard to see them getting out. But they do have two or three games between Chelsea and Arsenal that are winnable. But the problem is, if if Burnley keep picking up points and Burnley do look transformed, then it it's it's not really up to Everton to decide, and that that's a really really bad position to be in. Yeah, Burnley transformed is something they could really have done without. Um, uh, you know, and, and Sean Dyche leaving has not. Well, so far hasn't had a bad. You know, they're getting they're getting a bit of a bounce out of that. It looks like, um, so they've picked up a little bit of speed. Uh, while Everton, I mean, Miguel at Anfield yesterday, they, I mean, Frank Lampard described what they had done as smart, or he said we're not in a position to go top to toe. We're in a position to be smart. They had, I think, I mean, according to some sources, the the worst or the lowest ever share of possession by a Premier League team in a match the other source claimed that it was only the second worst ever since since data had been recorded you know they had a, they had a central midfielder who had two passes you know a central uh, defender who had three passes you know Shane Duffy had 44 completed passes when he played at Anfield earlier this season so what I'm saying is this was a total tactical debacle from Everton and Lampard's description of it as of their approach as smart shows that he um, well, he thinks about football in a, in a very antiquated way. It would be unlike Frank Lampard to give himself credit in any situation, of course. Uh, well, he, was, he, was trying to, he was trying to give the team yeah. credit collectively, but yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, ultimately, Frank got it right, so no, no blame can be put on his feet. That said, uh, I, I have to say I thought it was the right approach going into the game and basically until Andy Robertson scored. Um, because let's be fair, this, I mean... When you're in the situation Everton are in, and when you're so inferior to what Liverpool are probably in, kind of, you know, one of these spells of form that Klopp has had over his five and a half years, where it's just that sweet spot where they hit a different plane. Uh, so if you try to take them on in any sort of open football match, you'll just get destroyed. So I mean, they, I suppose they did. What I mean, Chelsea 2014 was the obvious example that was used a lot. Also, a bit of Atletico Madrid in that. Being the inferior side, they just set about trying to do anything to disrupt um, Liverpool. And, and for, for a lot of the game, it did work. It might have gone differently had they got the penalty. And also, to, I mean, it, I felt it was actually quite rare in this title run-in so far. I mean, I know it's, it's only been brief so far. 
But even if you look at, say, City's game against Brighton, or certainly against Watford on Saturday, because I think there's that feel for a lot of these running games where we go into them and there's that kind of slight edge about whether one of the two will drop up, but actually they'll just be tinnel up by half-time and that'll be that. Whereas, whereas this actually felt like kind of a, a classic run-in game and that there was proper... Pre- and you could actually feel in the first half, certainly, edge tra- quite early on in the half, edge transmitting from Everton, who were obviously in a much worse situation, to Liverpool, who had a bit of anxiety creeping into the game. Fabinho had that wild shot about even, what was it, 10 minutes before the Robertson goal. So there was that sense of kind of um, nerves building. Uh, but then, of course, one, I mean, the thing about those sort of tactics that Lampard put up is that once you concede, you've got nowhere to go, which is why it's and like it is entirely results-based football. Um, but, I mean, but if it's results-based, why, why doesn't he look at the results of teams that try to play this way against Liverpool? They, they lose. It's like 100% loss rate. Yeah, if you try to get play out against Liverpool, you'd get beaten worse. But well, you've got more of a chance against them. I mean, the evidence shows that you, you have more of a chance. I mean, if you, if you just let them have the ball uh, and you let them attack you, they are going to beat you and probably going to beat you by several goals. I mean, if you look at it, everyone from, from six, whenever Liverpool have 68% of possession or more in a game, and it happens quite a lot, they always win. There's one team that has managed to not lose to Liverpool in that situation, which was the 10-man Arsenal team that drew nil-nil in the uh, in the Carabao Cup, uh, yeah, the game that Granit Xhaka got sent off in, um, and they managed to to keep a clean sheet. But in that game, Liverpool didn't have to win the game on the night. This is a this is a strategy which is a one hundred percent guaranteed defeat, as close as you can get to that in football. So I, I would say that Everton, the, the the easy parallel to make as you were watching it was with Atletico Madrid and what what they did to Man City, and that. I think the, the same principle applies that in the first leg of that Champions League quarterfinal, Atletico would would were credited with kind of limiting City to just one goal and with shutting them down. But it was not in any way a a kind of admirable defensive performance because they carried no threat whatsoever. So you could see I was at that game and you could see after about an hour, City thought, hang on, these are not gonna come forward. We can commit as many men as we like to attack. We can keep the ball and we will we will eventually generate chances. And Foden comes on, plays that pass, De Bruyne scores, and that's the goal that takes City through. That's not how you are meant to play that way. The way to play that way, as as you've said, Ken, is you can spoil all you like, you can you can time waste, you can um you can feign injury as Richarlison did, you can try and, you know, use every trick in the book. And I don't think anyone should have any moral qualms with that because, you know, we're not all Victorian chambermaids. Like it, it's professional sport, get on with it. But you have to carry a threat. And Everton, although they did have one or two attacks, they were largely one player running forward on their own mm. and seeing how far they could get. And you know, there was the there was there was one there was the chance that Robertson cleared off the line after one nil and there was the penalty claim, although I'm I'm surprised that's been quite as controversial as it has been. And which the the Matip penalty? I mean, yeah I, penalty. I, I, I Jen, you thought you thought? Did you think it was a penalty? Oh, definitely. I, I, that's, that, that's absolutely fine. I respect your opinion. I saw it and couldn't see what the fuss was about. I, I, on the replay, <laughs> I, 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 I pushed them in the back. On the, on the replay, I actually agree with Rory. I must say, I, I thought really? in, in real in real time, I thought it was a foul. Then from the other angle, you could see that actually. I thought that Maddox didn't actually push him. It just his kind of. There was there was no force. He, in the he, he got in he got in front of him though. I thought. I mean, you know, it's it's he, just the, he, it's, it's he, the way that it is. He yeah. runs. So, he so, runs across so him. this is going out. Um, all right, there's a new embargo on this, but just just in Everton are going to complain to PGMOL about the penalty that wasn't. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, I mean, and, and this isn't the first time they've been screwed. I mean, well, I, I know that you you think this one is is debatable. I mean, I'd, I'd say it's certainly more debatable decision than, say, the Rodri one that they complained about before. And, you know, I think they got an apology. Um, oh, the, the, see, the Rodri one, I'll be yeah. massively accused of bias here. The Rodri one was a penalty, with, without a shadow of a doubt. That was definitely a penalty. Mm. This one, I think, the issue is that Jordan comes across him and it is whether it's Matic's natural motion. But I I, I I didn't see it live. I only saw it on, only saw it on replay because I was having my dinner. Yeah. And the... I looked at it expecting to see some sort of absolutely remarkable uh, refereeing fiasco like the one in Lazio Milan where the Lazio keeper handballed the ball outside the area and wasn't sent off somehow. But yeah. I was really surprised that it was. It looked like a... Yeah, there will be penalties like that that are given, but I, I don't think any of them are penalties. It, it didn't strike me as that controversial. But the, the bigger problem for Everton was that 
as the game wore on, Liverpool could tell there is no real consistent threat here. They might, you know, Richarlison might run from the halfway line and score. That's always a possibility. You, you can't mitigate for wonder goals. Or, you know, Anthony, Anthony Gordon is, is lively and poses a bit of a threat. But Liverpool clearly decided, well, look, we don't need three players in midfield. We can shove Aridi on up front because they aren't interested in coming forward. And to me, and this was, this was true of Everton and it's, it was true of Atletico Madrid, for it to be a truly kind of defining rearguard action, you need to pose a threat because that's the only way you sow a seed of doubt into the opposition's mind about committing men forward. Because ultimately, as you say, Ken, if you give the opposition the ball and you let them commit as many players forward as they want, they will score. Yeah, just on the on the penalty issue there, um, I mean Frank Lampard has has a he's been quite outspoken about this in in a sort of a, a strange way. Like you know after the what I mean is he sounds like a, <laughs> he sounds cons, conspiracy minded. You know he's you know there's some strange things going on with VAR, um, and he has okay been been screwed a couple of well, times. He made a reference before the game, didn't he, to how you don't get those at Anfield. Well, well this is the thing. He, yeah, he said he, he said this after the game, but in fact Everton have got two penalties in the previous yeah. four matches they've they've played there. Both of which I would say were more debatable than the one they didn't get. Uh, that the one the one they didn't get from from Matip. But I mean, what do you make of that? Is this just is this just Frank Lampard being a being a sore loser, I mean, is there is, is there a problem here? I mean, there have been some there have been some mad decisions. It's usual ref shot bollocks, though, isn't it? It's like, oh, it's, like it's, this, this is the thing that you just say you just say it's, it's, it's ref shot bollocks, all, all, as though all, there's all, never been a as though there's never been a refereeing scandal. Well, I mean, but in 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 modern Premier League, it's just I mean basic errors that happen. That I mean, you know, again, the argument is that VAR is supposed to eliminate this. All, all it's but it has, but just, it has in fact made it worse. Like honestly, it has, well, it has it's made, made it it's, way it's worse. Made it work, it's made it worse because people think that a VAR is about 100 percent accuracy, which it can't be. Uh, and that just, but because you have the um, the recourse of VARs, it makes any error feel all the worse because oh, this is what it's supposed to get rid of. But there will still be errors. And it's I mean, just, they're looking at it. They're looking at a, at a film there. Of, they're literally looking at a video from several angles of Rodri. Handling the ball, you know. I mean, and, and like, it's, how, and how can this be missed? Something's going on. It still comes down to subject, subjective interpretation. I mean, look, we've we've got um, we're, none of us are as versed in the rules as the officials, and when we're uh, we're debating it, it's just, it's just it's just all basically noise by the aggrieved, as it always will be. It, there, there is a there is a there is a desperation, and I, as I say, I have some sympathy with Everton on on the Rodri one, the the one in the Merseyside derby this year. Yeah, Ken, I, I, I admire and respect you enough to say to, to genuinely think if you think it's a penalty then to, to at least question my, my belief that it wasn't. Um mm. that is that isn't true of Miguel. The, um, <laughs> the the one in the the one in the Merseyside derby last year was was ridiculous. And I think there was another one that Lovren gave away, which should have been awarded because it was Dejan Lovren, but wasn't a penalty either. So it's you know, the, the this idea that teams don't get penalties at Anfield is demonstrably untrue and also I, I, I don't think Liverpool get that many penalties to be perfectly honest um, but they the, certainly don't give many away I think some people are pointing out that yeah, they've, the, it's 46 matches since they've they're, they're certainly due a big penalty against them the, the I'm not quite sure that's how it works the <laughs> um, the they're cruising for a penalty bruising <laughs> but if, if you go for a long enough without giving away a penalty you should just should well, just it, have to give away eventually, a penalty eventually you know there's a reason why this is the longest but, current run you know they've, they've been doing well to, to not give one away they've got Newcastle up next there, there is a point at which it does feel like Everton have a particular bee in their bonnet about Liverpool and yeah it, it, I know what you mean about it Lampard comes across as being slightly more conspiratorially minded than most other managers which is interesting because he's spent a lot of time at the at the very top of the game and knows what kind of an, knows what kind of an environment I, is. I would query whether Frank like Lampard that. has maybe benefited from one or two slightly questionable penalty claims in his career himself to be perfectly honest there is there's no question that the big teams the, the the elite teams give away fewer penalties partly because they're you know they're not defending as much but partly because referees are conscious, I think, subconsciously aware of the fact that awarding a penalty against those teams is a more controversial thing than than not, that they maybe need to be more sure that it's a penalty to give the penalty. And that, that I suspect, applies to the VARs as well. That That is a thing. But the fact that Everton continually complain about it, I, I would say, is not a great look, to be perfectly honest. 
Yeah. Um, can I ask you then about the team that um, actually both Liverpool and Manchester City have to play against uh, and a team that has been doing well better than Manchester City uh, this this uh, in this year, I think is it, is it this calendar year that Newcastle yeah. United are the are the second place team? And yeah, when you look at uh, what they've done, their last fourteen matches, uh, they've won ten of those matches, and it's, it's really a, it's been a phenomenal turnaround. Uh, I just wanted to question you about what you think is is going on here. How, how you would explain um, how you explain Newcastle's sudden emergence as the northern powerhouse? Um, I've been reading. Uh, some of the uh, local press. I see uh, Mark Douglas reports that Newcastle have a no dickheads policy for players that they bring in. Um, uh, Luke Edwards in the Daily Telegraph has spoken about team photos. Now, this this became a little bit controversial when Newcastle did a, did a dressing room photo after a win, which included Yasir Al-Rumayan. You know, so they had some of the sort of ownership figures that were in there as well in this. And... Um, Luke Edwards has written an article a couple of days back explaining how this is uh, Eddie Howe's um, psychological management of the squad. The, the, the squad photo is a sort of a carrot, if you will, that the players, you know, they aim, you know, they, they share in this moment after the game and then it's, it's a way of celebrating their success and bonding them closer together. And this has something to do with their improved form. I mean, what, what do you think of that? What do you think about that? Um, first of all, I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't mean this as a comment on Luke. He did some really good work on the takeover. Uh, but my perception on these sort of photos is they're exactly the sort of really minute detail that when something goes well, they're held up. Uh, because they're so visible, they're held up well. This, this is obviously such a huge influence. Uh, and when things are going bad, it's the flip side. When really they're just small, mostly irrelevant details, because the most relevant detail of Newcastle season is the fact that they're the first club in the history of English football to get anywhere close to 100 million investment in January. There's no getting away from that. And I know pe- people will accuse us of kind of, particularly like given my coverage of the takeover, of bitterness of whatever. But it's a fact. There's, there's never, Miguel, I do. Never been I, I have to say, I agree with you that, that Newcastle being by far the biggest spending club in the world in January it has more expansionary power when looking at their massive improvement of form since then than the team photo I think that Eddie Howe has brought in. I, I that, is a, that is a deeply count, uh, yeah. counterintuitive argument. How on earth would hiring five new players be more, more important than taking a picture? But there's, there's this urge as well to paint kind of Howe as some, you know, as like this is tactical mastermind. And, he, and he is, he's obviously a good coach, Eddie Howe. Doesn't, I don't think anyone will get away from that. But again... Well, he spends all his time thinking about yeah. football. Yeah, it's easier to coach when you've got He doesn't think players. about anything else. Yeah, he thinks well, well, absolutely well, he's a well, complete monomaniac. I have to say, though, this whole little theme, um, it's also, and I, and I suppose maybe some of the reaction to uh, Luke's tweet reflected this a little bit, but it does provoke the difficulty. Uh, and, and, and people might, might fairly talk about the hypocrisy of this, given the way... Chelsea and Manchester City and others have escaped it to a certain degree but the difficulty of basically talking about Newcastle as any kind of normal football team because uh, I, I think by the time that takeover happened we were all so attuned to these issues I, 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 it, I must say given, given the intention of the takeover I, I find it very difficult and even more difficult say than Manchester City which I probably shouldn't uh, to talk about them in any sort of normal way like a normal football team because uh, because it does because because it does feel that once you're talking about them in any sort of normal plan, you're basically legitimising uh, or normalising uh, w- what it is, which is basically. I mean, uh, Rory, there was there was a great line in that in that piece Rory did at the weekend over Bayern Munich. Um, hmm. I, I I can't remember who exactly said it. Uh, Rory will remember. Dario Dario Minden from Unserikerva, which is the, yeah. which is a, a fan organisation in Germany. Yeah, yeah. Basically, that um, you know, in all this debate about fifty plus one and how uncompetitive uh, German football is, well, I mean, when you really break it, break it down, and, and I think he was absolutely right in this one. His one club winning all and is it really worse than the moral problem of an autocratic dictator using a football club for political purposes? I mean, when you, when you actually when you stand back and consider the perspective, it's <laughs> there's just no comparison. And what, what, what they have no dickheads policy. Well, I mean, the thing about the 
No, they don't apply. It only it's only a downward. It's a downward facing no dickheads policy. Upward facing, it's it's kind of it's more realistic. That that the no dickheads thing. This is and Midell's dealing with much more serious issues. But the no dickheads thing is is that that comes out of rugby. That's the all black policy. Yeah, yeah. That famously you meant to clean up the dressing room and and generally behave like a normal human being. Literally every club now says they have a no dickheads yeah, policy, yeah. which is remarkable given that there are loads of dickheads in football. But I, I don't think that 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 is the same as as the photos. Like it's yeah, fine. They, they they'll have this kind of we want to sign nice people. Obviously, obviously they do. But the, like you say, the, the 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 thing that has changed is partly that Steve Bruce wasn't doing a good job at Newcastle. That the fans hated him. I think a lot of the players had they were maybe fond of him as a, a person. I think Steve Bruce is quite a nice bloke, but. I don't think they kind of believe that he knew what he was doing or could get them out of trouble. Howe's come in, he's young, he's energetic, he's dynamic, he's given them a bit of belief, results have followed, and that has bred success. And I think you can say, I think it's legitimate to say that Eddie Howe has done a good job. It's also legitimate to say that at least part of that is because they went and spent nearly 100 million quid in, in January and made the squad a lot better. I think if Eddie Howe had the same squad as Steve Bruce, then they wouldn't be ninth. I think that's... That's blindingly obvious. But Miguel's right. The tricky bit for all of us is at what point do you introduce the fact that, okay, this is not being done for the... And Newcastle fans will get cross about it because Man City fans get cross about it, Chelsea fans get cross about it, that this is not being done solely for the the greater glorification of Newcastle United and the return of, of you know, English football's great sleeping giant. That's, that's not what it's about. It's about Saudi Arabia kind of presenting a... Presenting a face to the world and embedding itself in 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 British society, Western society, in the same way as has happened at Man City and to an extent in a different context at Chelsea, but those those three things are all true and it's and that's fine. That's that's kind of I say that's fine. That's just how it is. That's there is no getting away from any of those three facts. That the fact that it is a sports washing project doesn't mean Eddie Howe hasn't done a good job at a sports washing project. He has, but you can't separate the money or the purpose of it from that. And the one thing on the that side of it, does I get this kind of, not as much as Miguel, but you get you hear this kind of that the southern media are envious of Newcastle. That I guarantee that if Newcastle had been bought out by some cold-blooded, heartless American hedge fund, American hedge fund, none of this would be happening. None of it, and that's that. You know, you can have your problems with hedge funds buying football teams, and we probably all should have a problem with hedge hedge funds buying football teams. To be perfectly honest. But ultimately, the the reaction would be far more akin to the one that Newcastle fans sincerely believe they feel they should be given, which is, you know, this is a nice story and it's good that Newcastle are going to be good again. The the if it was if it was yeah some weirdly named sort of black hawk down capital who bought them, <laughs> then then there would be none of this. There would be none of this because their interests are in 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 improving a club so they can sell it on or whatever which aren't pure and they're not you know they're not kind of Delia Smith or Fernando Rodge who who runs Villarreal and they're doing it all because they love the, they love the place it but it's not it's not what Saudi Arabia are doing that's where the, there is a line and some things are one side of it and some things are the other side of it and Saudi Arabia is on the other side of it what I am, I am surprised by one thing about Newcastle, which is sort of how quickly this improvement has happened. You know, like, I mean, if you look at it, I think their previous 14 matches, you know, they'd won one. And like, yeah, before the, the, the 14 of which they've won 10 um, since their sort of big span. So things have come together very fast. Uh, now, OK, there's, there's there's a lot of circumstances there, you know. Um, there's a sort of surge of optimism going on. Maybe they can't sort of sustain this for a long time before running into problems. But at the moment, it looks as though this is a team that could realistically aim to qualify for the Champions League next season. I mean, you know, if, if you if you're if you're getting better results than Manchester City over almost half a season, then you know you, you've got to start thinking of yourself as a contender. I'm sure they're going to improve even more. Uh, and with that kind of, you, you can, it's, there's a tangible sense among the players um, that, you know, this, we're, we're now at a club that's going places. This is an exciting place to be, you know, as a football player who, who wants to win things and make money. Um, and so uh, I don't actually want us to talk any more about Newcastle, but the fact that this sort of new uh, player is involved um, 
uh, and is and is competing for this limited scope of um, prizes. Does this put Eric Ten Hag <laughs> under even more pressure? A Eric... screech, a screeching segue from Ken. Well, it was Thursday when uh, we we had actually recorded most of our, our our football pod on Thursday when when they confirmed the news. So we haven't really got a chance to to sort of uh, get into it. Can I just ask you both if you if you think they've they've chosen the right guy? I mean, there is some talk uh, that some of the people involved there that that it wasn't like a unanimous decision necessarily Manchester United. I'm not saying you need these things to be unanimous but that there was some people who still thought that Maurizio Pochettino would have been the best bet for them I think Mid has covered the story more more closely than me but Ten Hag makes sense he's he's a coach on the rise he's he's kind of cutting edge in the sense that you're, you're not dealing with someone like Van Gaal or or even Mourinho who was probably on 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 their decline and and the game was moving away from them or even David Moyes who at the time he took the United job probably wasn't didn't have the skill set to to manage a club of the, you know at that stage was probably the, what the second best team in the world ish um, that was too much of a leap so it made sense in that in that sense uh, I think he taps them into to a market of players he he develops players he will coach the players properly there's a, an argument that a lot of these players at Man United haven't been pro- been properly kind of coached. In a, in a sort of very modern way for some time, if ever, um, because of the managers that they've had. He's, he's seen, he, I've, I met him a few years ago when I made the semis of the Champions League. He's, he's energetic, he's dynamic, he's really bright. Um, I think he will be, I think he's quite likeable. That all matters. The, the, the most telling point on this actually came from Alvaro Romeo, who's a Spanish journalist, um, who's pointed out the kind of parallel with Cantona in 92, that, that Cantona came in and suddenly made everything click. It, that United, that United team was a good team. They'd come close to winning the league the year before, but but Cantona's arrival just gelled everything together almost instantly. They they had this superstar. They had this player who was a cut above everybody else in the in the country. They had this inspirational figure, and it and it just gave them. It made everything work. And I think we often think about football like that as a kind of jigsaw to be completed. And if you if you slot a player or a manager in, then suddenly the picture becomes clear. I think that's underselling how how modern elite football works now. That that it's not about individuals; it's about systems. It's not about kind of in, you know, personal inspiration. It's about kind of collective hierarchies. They're com- clubs are complex organisms, and you're competing with in England, particularly with two teams who are kind of best in class at what they do in in Man City and Liverpool. And the idea that Ten Hag, however good a coach he is, might be able to come in and immediately make everything work even in kind of two years, is probably a little bit ambitious. It, it's a good start, but there's so much at United that has, has to be done. I was talking the other day to someone about the, the kind of... The parallel that's drawn is when Klopp arrived at Liverpool and the kind of similar philosophical change that's required at United. The difference to me is that I think when Klopp went in at Liverpool... you. You'd had a manager before who played a different type of football, but it wasn't a world away from what Klopp was trying to do. So you had a few players at Liverpool who immediately got Klopp's methods. And I remember remember being told within a few weeks that Klopp had kind of identified Firmino and Lallana and Henderson and Milner and I think Emre Chan as the players who kind of understood what he was trying to do straight away. They they. Obviously, at least one of them, Emre Can, kind of fell by the wayside. But Emre Can had, had grown up in Germany. He'd played in German youth academies. He, it probably wasn't an alien style of football to him. Firmino played for Hoffenheim, who were a pressing team. Suited Henderson and Milner's games um, pretty well. And Lallana was a was an, a sort of an ideal pressing midfielder. And I think the problem that Ten Hag's got is you look at that Man United team. Who who do you build around? Who do you make your cornerstones who are already there? And who has got the same kind of conceptual background as him on the playing staff? And there's not very many. There's maybe Jadon Sancho. There's probably Luke Shaw, because he's played under Pochettino and because he's he's you know one of the best left-backs in the world. And that's kind of it. And that makes it a much more difficult job for Ten Hag than than I think has been advertised because it's not just about it, it's not just a case of him implementing his vision of football you need a, a like a whole scale hierarchical change that will take years to accomplish and the problem at United is that no one ultimately nobody gets years yeah I've seen for instance Michael Cox who who's has 
uh, I found interesting because he's he's quite a, an optimist in terms of where Manchester United are at. Um, he reckons Miguel sort the midfield out, and that's basically job done. You know, if 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 United had had if United are able to kind of f- figure out a, a good central midfield, um, they'll obviously need to to bring somebody in. Um, the rest of the pieces are more, are more or less in place. You know, the, I agree. I agree with him that uh, there's there are a lot of players at the club who are currently looking worse or or being made to look bad by how bad things are and things are in general. But what do you think of the, of the argument that actually you know? Um, sort out the central midfield and you know bingo bango I think it's a bit well both Rangnick and Ten Hag I'm of the understanding have told them that they basically need about 10 players I think actually Rangnick even said that last week and it sounded like one of those lines he tried in a press conference but from what I'm told it actually wasn't uh, he was specifically like say these are the kind of numbers he's recommended to Manchester United and I, I do absolutely agree that um, you know suddenly players who seem absolutely lost causes can actually suddenly look completely different in a productive environment. And, and actually, if you want a perfect example of that, in fact, there's two perfect examples from a man that Manchester United possibly should have hired, Antonio Conte, and one close to home, uh, Doherty at, at Tottenham Hotspur. Before him, Victor Moses at Chelsea. Uh, and like, uh, they are examples of how any good coach, and Ten Hag is a good coach, uh, can, can improve a player. And I, from that perspective, I think, at the very least, because Ten Hag is, to repeat the words, a good coach, and really, the, I mean, you could argue actually the first, the first um, up-and-coming coach who practices kind of, you know, uh, the the most uh, the cutting edge of the game or the practices at the at the at the, uh, at the forefront of the game that he's the first they've hired along those lines since Ferguson retired, and I think that at the very least should restore. Manchester United to consistent Champions League qualification level, which should really be their baseline. And to be fair, what Solskjaer actually had them at for two seasons, um, which is I didn't think Solskjaer was good. Um, I think Michael Cox is saying that the, all you need to do is, is fix the midfield, and that, that is probably the, the main problem area. Do, do we think that a team coached by Ten Hag, who is officially, with capital letters in the right places, a good coach, like a team with Harry Maguire and like an ageing and slightly disinterested Rafa Varane centre half and Aaron Wan-Bissaka at right back and Rashford who's just gone off who's disappeared off a cliff over the last two years and Sancho who doesn't appear to have got anything like the same kind of dynamism he had in Germany do we think that that's a team that can challenge for the title does no. I, I, mean, I I don't no no I, I mean I think that their problems are, are a bit I mean I think the fullbacks are a massive problem you know I mean I, no Luke Shaw if you've, if you've got like a fully fit Luke Shaw um you know He's a he's a useful player, but he misses a lot of games, and I, I don't know if that's necessarily going to improve. On the other side, I think they ju- they need to get somebody else. You know what I mean? Uh, I think that's a that's a huge shortcoming of the of the squad. The the forwards, I don't really know what they're going to do. I mean, you know, they've got Ronaldo, who's going to be thirty eight uh, next season. Um, Cavani, you know, is is leaving. Rashford has has had problems, although I would expect him to improve. Um, you know, other players who they were counting on are not going to be there. Um, it's you know, it, it seems as though there are there are a few problems there, and then with with the likes of Newcastle um, suddenly coming, but maybe they're you know, just to close on a positive note for them um, and to bring in someone you mentioned uh, there, Miguel, briefly. Um, maybe Antonio Conte is not going to be around. <laughs> I mean, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen there? Antonio Conte, he came like a whirlwind. He won and lost. In almost equal measure, uh, I think Tottenham were the were were Tottenham the team just behind Newcastle on that on that graph of this year. You know, the results have been have definitely improved since Conte came in, but maybe they haven't improved enough. Maybe they haven't improved enough to get them into the Champions League. This all remains to be remains to be seen. But uh, where do you think Conte and Tottenham's romance, tempestuous romance, is at, Miguel? I think it's fifty fifty that there's maybe actually more than fifty fifty maybe kind of 60-40, that there's a break in the summer and we could well see a job, a straight job swap between himself and Riccio Pochettino. Because uh, from what I've been told, basically the air around Conte, and he's hearing this from people around him, and I actually, I, 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 I don't know if he thinks it himself, but I think from his press conferences you can probably discern the same, that basically he thinks he's better than Tottenham Hotspur and that there's a feeling that almost Spurs could... Um, 
could I, that this could be his first job in a decade that doesn't reflect, or over a decade that doesn't reflect well, and that he doesn't come out with a, a with a tangible success. Which is what was this sense that he wants to get out of here before he's infected with Tottenhamness? Um, well. The thing is, I, 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 do, I do think that uh, if you just isolate his, his impact in the team and the results, especially since we're, from where they were in, in October, he, ha, he has actually had a positive contribution, but he just he won't be seen though. And similar, actually, because this is something that's come up again over the weekend, it's similar the way, like, and it's been relevant to the debate about Manchester United, where it's as if kind of. Pochettino's work at Spurs, because there was no silverware at the end of it, it's kind of, well, he didn't do it well. Whereas actually, if you stand back, and I, I tweeted about this yesterday, Tottenham got 86 points in 2016-17. That is basically a massive, massive outlier in the modern history of the Tottenham. Um, it, they just don't get close to that. It was an immense achievement. And I'm, okay, well, what Conte um, has done at the moment isn't uh, isn't anywhere close to that. But he has had. If you just stand back and look at the results and the impact, he's had tangible improvements. But uh, I suppose just because Tottenham are kind of a, a half-built squad up against wealthier rivals, there's always going to be that inconsistency, and it, it feeds into that frustration when the chance is there to get back into the Champions League, and they might necessarily take it. But just to bring it kind of full circle in, in that way, yeah. I mean, I suppose like with Conte and with Manchester United, we're not, of course we're not we're not actually talking about getting Manchester United back into the Champions League. What we're talking about is what Manchester United really should be. And that's even, even with the Glazer um, investment payments, really they're the only English club with the true financial muscle to challenge City. Really, I mean, Manchester United have the weight to be up there with Manchester United, or sorry, where Manchester City and Liverpool are. They can do that, even with the Glazers owning them. Uh, of course, there's issues because Joel Glazer demands final say and so much. That's, that's almost a bigger problem than, the, than the, the financial situation they're in. But, but that is going to require more than any... I think that, that, that's where the debate gets bigger. That's going to require more than any single managerial appointment. And that's where it gets more complicated. And it's about what they do next. But also there's, there's an issue... In the, and Ken, I know you wanted to finish on a positive for them. And I'm, neither me or me don't help with that. But okay. I think one of the issues at United is is beyond, is, is basically conceptual, and that's that United, there's a whole generation of United fans, probably two generations of United fans, who have grown up believing that the kind of natural order of things is that Manchester United are the most successful club in, in England, they are the biggest team in England, they are the kind of default champions in the same way as, as Bayern are in Germany and Juventus are in Italy, that if they are adequate and nobody else is amazing, then they win the league. And that was true for 20 years, because that's exactly what United were under Ferguson. They obviously had brilliant teams in that period, but there, there were years when United won the league just because nobody else really arose to challenge them and they were they were Manchester United, so they were automatically the best. Th- that will never happen again, whatever happens, because of the way that the finances of the game have changed and that City are now going to be the default champions, that you know Guardiola will leave and at some point City will probably stop setting ridiculous points totals because there is a, a, a certain degree of alchemy of massively kind of financially supercharged club and the world's greatest coach that, that leads to 100 points, 98 points. This year it may well be 95 points. But they will always be the, the kind of premier force and the only way around that is probably Newcastle. And yeah, Miguel's completely right. United could get to that level. So you could, you could find the that in five, ten years' time, it's City, Newcastle and Manchester United who are the kind of three forces of, of English football. But they will never stand on their own again. That that has that period has gone. And I worry that any manager, any executive, any group of players will fall foul of that, that, that United could return to finishing... They could finish third five years in a row and be doing everything absolutely right but still finish third. And that that is a really difficult situation for them to be in because it makes it much harder for them to gauge accurately what success looks like. Victims of their own historic success. A sombre note on which to end. Uh, Rory Smith, Miguel Delaney, thanks very much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Pleasure. Kung Fu 
That's pretty much it for today, but uh, Ken, slight personal digression here, if you don't mind, um, because I would like to send my personal congratulations to Real Betis and their veteran coach Manuel Pellegrini for their thrilling win on penalties in the Copa del Rey final on Saturday evening, for it was in Seville, Ken, the Bia, as yeah. the locals pronounce it. Look it up. That's yeah. how they pronounce it. Uh, that's where I spent a few idyllic days uh, last week. I took a keen interest in the local culture, as I always do, of course. Yeah. And by that, I mean I turned on the TV in our apartment once for 10 minutes and found myself watching Real Betis TV. Mm-hmm. Production values were poor to extremely poor, yeah. I would say. But the impression I got was that they were very excited about this Copa del Rey final. So congratulations, Coach Pellegrini. He coached a hell of a game out there on Saturday night. He coached his ass off, in fact. <laughs> Coach so, Pellegrini. He, see, yeah, Coach Pellegrini coached his ass off. You see, Coach, Coach Ancelotti is about to become the first manager to, the first coach to win the, the league in the, in the top five leagues. Mm. England, well, he's a, he's Germany, a hell of a coach. Italy, Italy, France, and Spain, Spain. You know, Real Madrid are going to seal the deal. Poor old Barcelona. I don't know if you saw Coach Xavi is having a bit of a... Mm. Set, an, set the unwanted record of losing uh, three consecutive home uh, matches uh, in one season uh, for the first time ever. So, <laughs> so Coach Abby, well, I mean, you know, f- that's the coaching game, though. You know, yeah. Coach Ancelotti becomes the winningest coach in, you know, sort of the pan-continental realm. Yeah. But Coach Xavi, you know, but he's he's got time to turn it around. You could argue that Rai Vallecano's win at the New Camp yesterday uh, gives the lie to the stuff that I was saying about Frank Lampard uh, in terms of the the hopelessness of a game mm. plan which involves simply defending your own box and not really doing anything. Um, however, uh, they did have a bit more possession than... Uh, I mean, and it is true that, that Rai Vallecano won this game with one shot on target. Uh, <laughs> the one shot on target. Barcelona, 18 shots to three, five shots on target to one. And uh, 72% possession to 28. And Rayo Vallecano uh, were the only ones that managed to score a goal in the game. So it finished uh, finished 1-0. They did have a lot more play than Everton. I mean, Everton had 93 passes and Rayo Vallecano had 264. So, you know, it's, they, they were mm. a bit more involved in the game. I think the main difference, though, is that if you're, when you're playing against a team like Barcelona, which is, you know, a, a, a sort of a recently assembled, a, still a jumble of a team, you know, with some old players, some new players, some recently arrived players, uh, a fairly new manager, players who maybe are going to be there. Uh, you know, Dembele, is he going to be there next season? Nobody knows. Is De Jong going to be there next season? It's still not really clear. So this is a team that's kind of all up in the air. Um, and I think, you know, you can uh, you can play a, a frustration, frustration ball against a team like that, and it might work. I mean, as it did famously against Liverpool in 2014. I just don't think that it's a realistic approach to take against a team that's uh, doing really well. Am I repeating myself now? I'm, back. I, I'm afraid I am. I'm no, back I w- to the I beginning. Would call it, I would call it uh, closing the circle yeah. on today's show. Okay? Return to where we started and know the place for the first time. Uh, we, we'll have another show coming out a little later today where my camera hogging ways at GA Games will no doubt get a mention. But for now, all that remains for me is to say thank you, Ken. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you very much for listening and we'll hopefully catch you on the World Service tomorrow. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. It is not war and death and famine, it's not that at all. It's the opposite of that, it's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sport's important.